0: Welcome to Tech Talk Digital Supply Chain Podcast, where we will help you eliminate the noise and focus on the information and inspiration that you need to transform your business, impact supply chain success, and enable you to replace risky inventory with valuable insights. Join your Tech Talk host, Corinne Bursa, the 2020 Supply Chain Pro to Know of the Year. With more than 25 years of supply chain and technology expertise and the scars to prove it, Corinne has the heart of a teacher and has helped nearly 1,000 customers transform their businesses and tell their success stories. Join the conversation, share your insights, and learn how to harness technology innovations to drive tangible business results. Buckle up. It's time for Tech Talk. Powered. Supply chain now.
1: Well, welcome back, supply chain movers and shakers. Corinne Bursa here, your host for Tech Talk, the digital supply chain podcast. You know, as supply chain leaders, we need to be nimble and we need to leverage the available resources and capacity to really provide superior service, to increase efficiencies, to balance a multitude of variables across our network. And don't forget as a part of that, we're making every attempt to mitigate risk. One of the core benefits in the area of digital supply chain technology is the ability to help you really replace risky inventory with valuable information. And one of the hottest topics right now is digital transformation. In October of 2020, a McKinsey report came out. um, So this is six months after uh, the onslaught of the COVID epidemic. And what they found is that in that six month window of time, digital transformations in the area of supply chain specifically had taken a quantum leap forward. And they tallied as many transformations had taken place that historically would have taken us four plus years to achieve. So that should light really a sense of urgency around the opportunities, because it's not just about reducing cost. It's about increasing agility, increasing resilience, and being able to really transform not just visibility, but the actual movement of goods in our networks. So as transformation becomes more and more about being competitive, I'm so glad that today we've got an expert with us. We're going to take a little different twist in the conversation as well. So, not just what is the importance of transformation, but how do we accelerate that? How do we look at time to value as a component of our transformation initiatives? So, with us to discuss why time to value matters in supply chain transformation is Bill Benton with GAIN Systems. Bill, you're an expert in this field. You've helped literally hundreds of companies address the challenges in their networks, increase visibility, accelerate inventory turns. It's great to have you here with us today on Tech Talk.
2: Well, thanks, Corinne. It's great to be here. It's always nice to see you and uh, appreciate the opportunity to share some perspective today.
1: Yeah, we appreciate that. Tell us just a little bit about GAINS, about what your mission is with GAINS, and just to give us some background before we dive into our topic.
2: So, you know, our mission in, in a phrase would be to democratize world-class planning. And uh, what we mean by that is uh, through focus on time to value and a pragmatic phased approach, how can we bring innovations Uh, proven advanced methodologies that work for uh, the largest organizations like Honda Motors or Rockwell Automation, and bring those to the mid and upper mid-tier companies that have great room for improvement in a digitization process. Take them out of spreadsheets and into a cohesive approach that then can be built on incrementally to leverage machine learning automation, AI prediction, et cetera, and do that in a way that's scalable at the enterprise level and repeatable, right? So yeah, happy to to chat more about what process uh, helps accelerate time to value, which really starts before anybody decides to to implement a solution like games, for example, but we think in, in the case of any solution, should start before that.
1: Okay, hold that idea. I I like a couple of the directions you were going for just a minute there. Give me one or two customer examples of of just some of the impact in transformation. So I wanna kind of start with the end in mind. So maybe choose one or two customers and just give, give our listeners a feel for the type of supply chain transformation that has been achieved.
2: Okay. Well, let me start with a growing uh, mid-sized manufacturer named Stuller. They're one of the largest jewelry manufacturers in North America. At the outset of the pandemic, they had, as many people can relate to, very significant disruptions in their supply Mm -hmm. chain. They have a broad-based supply network everywhere from India to South America to Southern Louisiana, and they had to pivot very quickly in order to sustain what turned out to be heightened demand uh, during this period, which which was surprising for them, so mm-hmm. there are a few aspects of that. First, they had been running, you know, sort of a traditional on-premise approach, and they made a decision that to collaborate effectively with suppliers and to have supplier planning portal, et cetera. They needed a cloud-based system that can implement quickly. So we were able to have their solution functional within eight weeks of initiating the project. And that that was, we think, largely attributable to leveraging what integrations they already had in place. So rather than doing a, a large scale integration approach, we looked at what data flows are already working between even ERP and Excel, right? What extracts do they have? How can we repurpose those to feed into a single canonical data model uh, for planning, and then how can we uh, prioritize the improvements in a way where we get some quick wins up front, right? And then, in their case, we had a three-stage implementation process with that first stage happening rapidly.
1: Okay, so that's a great—I mean, that's a great example, and and I'm already hearing in the conversation, you know, breaking it up and getting some wins out of the gate. I also expect that in that time of so many disruptions, there had to be an opportunity for, for the customer, for Stuller, to really rebalance their network as well or to look at alternate suppliers and to do that very quickly as a part of continuing to serve uh, their customers. So very, very interesting example there. Now, when you when you hear the word, transformation. When a customer comes to you, or a prospect, is working with the team at Gains and they say we're in the midst of a transformation or we're starting a transformation. What things come to mind or what do you think about as you're helping coach them through that process or put a plan in place?
2: Well, I mean, it, it's a lot of it goes back to the Pareto principle, right? So, often there's a minority of Functional foci that will contribute a majority of the prospective benefits and those quick wins up front. So why we focus on time to value, other than the obvious reasons that you know ROI is a function of time, not just R, mm-hmm. but uh, but also because uh, some projects can stall or even fail because of inertia, right? So to the extent that there can be tangible wins. That create, say, positive morale for continued investment, and what's often, you know, culturally challenging stuff for some companies. You know, people learn, having to learn new skills, people's roles adapting, and so so. What we look at is where, when you look across culture, availability of data, integration complexity, training requirements. What, what's that sweet spot of the handful of items that are high impact and high feasibility?
1: And, and is that, is there always a common starting point or is it different based on every business and, and maybe what their process has been prior to engaging with you?
2: You know, there's no one size fits all formula. So
1: we don't always start at square one is what you're saying. No, like some
2: people would think, well, what's the flow? You start with sales forecasting, inventory policy, then you do supply planning, then you blend it together in SNOP, and then maybe layer in some multi enterprise or some network design. Right. So, so that as you know, as I was a student of supply chain and planning, that's how you think of things, right? There is a sequential flow. However, you know, at Rockwell Automation, we started with inventory optimization because they had simultaneously a need to reduce some surplus in areas and also to invest in areas where they needed more resilience, where they might be reliant through no fault of their own, but because of the realities of the marketplace on a small number of interdependent suppliers uh, that might have a, a significant time to recover in the event of an unexpected event. And so, so there we start with inventory optimization and then move from there to supply planning and then into uh, ultimately SNOP. So, mm-hmm. whereas uh, with others, we've started with supply planning and others with demand planning, collaborative planning, et cetera. So, so the answer is no. And how how do you discern some of this? So, we, we have something we refer to as the proven path to performance, our P3 methodology, which is really a discovery and data-driven approach. So, rather than starting with here's the use cases we think we need to focus on, and here's a list of requirements, et cetera. Let's let's run some real data, right? Discover where both pragmatically and empirically the opportunities are and let that guide us. And interestingly, that can often be quite different from the original set of presumptions once once you actually assess the data and look at what's available and what's feasible. So so that's that's sort of in our DNA to work from a, a data and an empirical perspective
1: forward. Yeah, yeah, taking taking a very objective view too. I, I imagine in the process that that in that discovery process, you're able to really uncover maybe some some hidden gems in, in helping your customers, you know, start this journey and, and really map out the plan um, for execution. Tell us a little bit about Time to Value. I've been in this industry a long time. You've been in the industry a long time. We've certainly all heard the stories about implementations of supply chain technology that have lasted for three years, four years uh, before a company finishes that project. And I got to tell you that um, that's concerning to me. When I hear these long time horizons my first thought is by the time you finish, it's time to start all over again because you need to take into consideration the fact that your network is, it, it's not fixed. It's living and breathing. And there's a multitude of different um, variables to be optimized at any point in time. So when, when Bill, when you and the team at Gaines are, are thinking in terms of time to value, Give us a feel for what that means. And, you know, are there, there are multiple stage gates where we kind of get some benefits and then we get more benefits? How does that work?
2: Yeah. So we think of it as sort of a multi phase uh, telescoping uh, horizon approach. So there should be something tangible within the first quarter. Right? Mm. So, let, what what is it that we can show both internally and potentially? to the ecosystem within three months, right? So if you start with that premise, and then you fit to that, as opposed to saying, here's the functions we want, now let's try to do a left to right schedule on the timeline. We we feel you come up with a very different set of priorities. So if you start with a fixed date and look to what's feasible within that, and, and we believe that first phase should be quite short within a quarter, and it's been as little as, you know, we want to reduce our lead time forecast variance by half, right? So if people are predicting what their lead time is going to be for procurement, something simple might be right now, our variance around what we presume is lead time is mm-hmm. plus or minus 60%. We want to cut that to plus or minus minus three. That could be a very tangible win, right? And maybe that's what you focus on while you have parallel tracks. So the other element with time to value is prioritizing an initial win, but also working parallel tracks that are all mutually reinforcing. So generally, you know, we see sort of a three phase approach, three, six and 12 months. And then there's sort of a continuous improvement cycle of maturation. But as as people want to say, I think it's Bill Gates says, you chronically overestimate what you could do in a year and underestimate what you could do in a decade right But, but to sustain that decade's improvement, you need to have tangible wins in the short run. And so you know, I, I don't want to spout too much about games uh, specifically, but generally speaking, having a solution and a strategy for implementing it that leads to those early tangible wins, we think is crucial.
1: Yeah, I, I think and just as, as we were stating earlier, too, you know if, if you start with the end in mind, I think one of the big challenges with lengthy projects that really delay the return on investment is that you run the risk of, you know, getting distracted by another shiny object or you lose the momentum that you may have, you know, gotten in the design process for, for a solution set as well. And with these um, shorter uh, projects, if you will, and, and thinking, as you said, in terms of maybe three, six and 12 month horizons, you're able to build that knowledge base within the customer or within the, the company that you're serving, uh, but you also get to see some of that momentum. Um, what's that like? Do you find that you know they can wrap their brain around some of that incremental change and then get ready for the next step change? Um, what's, how do they respond, I guess, to that process?
2: Well, I think the answer is in probably three distinct sort of perspectives. First is from IT, right? So from right. an IT perspective, this sounds far too aggressive, right? generally. Like, what can we actually get live in three months? The answer is we might be done with our InfoSec evaluation by week eight, right? So how do we how do you create, first of all, bringing them into dialogue early and finding out what they're comfortable with, right? And Mm -hmm. that might mean that, you know, using the Pareto principle as well, rather than trying to do, say, a full integration, maybe manually updating key parameters for the top 10% of changes is a viable approach. So what can we do that's viable for IT and operations and leverages a lot of the benefits so being a pragmatist there the second perspective would be operationally right how can we generally you're going to have different camps right you're going to have the zealots that want to improve things the show me's which are i'm open to it but i'd love to see somebody else try it and then the the skeptics right and so what can be very helpful and that's not the case in all cases right i'm over generalizing for the purpose of sort of emphasis here, but how do you get, give tangible examples, right? Don't trust me that the algorithm's better. Let me show you some specific cases of improvement that the, the zealots can show to the show who can then share with the skeptics, right? And so it's a lot easier to promote process and culture change with really tangible, understandable, uh, positive examples. Um, and then lastly, executives, right? So how does it move the needle for high-level business objectives, whether that's, you know, fill rates, customer sat, uh, working capital goals, inventory turns? Usually there's going to be some set of goals. And if you can show something tangible, even if if it's with a subset, say we're going to try 10% of our vendors or this one production manufacturing facility right and and where they can extrapolate that quick win to say all right so now we know if we were to roll this out here's what it looks like and here's how it would support our strategic objectives so I think those are uh, those are the three different perspectives and and how you know having this qu- quick time to value can can build momentum in, in all three areas but also being pragmatic about it
1: yeah and I I think 10 years ago, we would talk about people process in technology. Um, now it's people process technology and data. A- and the availability of data has changed exponentially. But I've heard the term or the phrase said many a time, I'm drowning in data and I'm hungry for insights. Mm-hmm. So how do you help your customers you know, to harness that data? and to interpret it in ways that can be meaningful from a supply chain planning process, right? So we, we've got to train the people, we've got to look at the process. Those are things that uh, have been part of the methodology for decades. How now do we, do we expand that to say, you know what? You want to do demand sensing or you want to work more collaboratively with your suppliers or maybe you want to incorporate some, you know, some available market data that has new housing starts or or some other uh, syndicated data that's meaningful. Hmm. What what does that look like as a part of this transformation process?
2: Well, I think there's a sort of 3 prong approach to that. First is uh, sort of taking a converse of the traditional role, which is, okay, traditionally, let's say here's some solutions analytics we want to put in place now let's do a mapping exercise and say here's all the data we need to utilize these functions right Mm -hmm. as opposed to saying here's the data we have what functions can we leverage in light of that right now that that should evolve to okay now how do we prioritize data gaps between what we have and what we'd like based on the broader set of analytics or solutions that we want to bring to bear. But again, sort of, and forgive me, uh, forgive me for being a bit of a broken record, but going back to the time to value, you know, sometimes you go to war with the army, you have not the one you wish you had. And if you think of that in a data context, Mm -hmm. it's, we're going to, uh, you know, an analytical uh, melee, right, with the data that we have available. So I think that one one prong is reversing that and saying, here's the data we have. What can we do? The second prong is given the additional things we'd like to do. How do we prioritize those data gaps uh, again, based on greatest sort of return on effort uh, of acquiring that data? And and then the third prong is and from a game systems perspective, we think of it as as two parts of what we could bring to reduce the amount of effort to to decide what data is needed and to acquire it. So the first part is how can you self parameterize? Right. So a lot of solutions require, OK, here's some data. How do you cleanse it? How do you, you know, detect anomalies? How do you fill gaps? So we try to provide tools to do those things. And then how many levers do you have to pull just to get an analytics set up and running, right? The other, that's where the self parameterization comes in. Can you get plausible output without having to set you know, dozens of switches um, or hire third parties to do so?
1: So, um, so when you talk about self-parameterization, does that, that mean systematically things are happening or that you're coaching the client's team, the customer's team through uh, what they need to do? What? What? I mean, that sounds very compelling, self-parameterization. Um, what What does that look like from a pragmatic perspective?
2: Well, it means allowing but not requiring uh, setup to get reasonable results. So the solution should have built in intelligence to mm. recommend uh you know a default approach for everything, whether that's stocking policy uh where and at what level for example in the bill of distribution or bill of materials of stock what should the service level be right what's a what is the type of demand for this likely type type of demand for this new product is it seasonal or not for example so these are all things where the solution should have a baseline automatic recommendation but also a glass box approach where you can see what that is why and fine tune that so to answer your question it's both you start with an automated self-parameterized you know sort of configuration and then do continuous rounds of fine tuning and training to help with that the other half of this third prong is bringing data to the table right so for Mm -hmm. example within games we do what we call continuous network flow optimization so as you change suppliers as you add customers lose customers add products how do you optimally flow well things like freight rates change a lot yep. and and if you need to hire a consultant to do a periodic process where they collect all these data around freight rates maybe tariffs capacities etc you know the shelf life on that model is going to be quite short and maybe some of the data is already aged by the time you're getting the results so we're trying to bring things like freight rates and you know uh, visibility to container movements and all that to the table uh, without the customer having to provide those information and to do that on a continuous basis as opposed to a periodic basis.
1: So so that's very powerful when i think especially around opportunities for for automation, right? So so one of the themes that you know the supply chain has an opportunity to really impact for a business is, is to automate or accelerate Certain business process or certain functions that happen. And I think that this has become increasingly important, especially in today's market where, uh, honestly, talent is a real challenge. I mean, talent is a new constraint to be managed. And so we need to be looking for those opportunities to automate where we can. Talk to me a little bit about automation. So I like this idea of self parameterization and that accelerating at least the initial setup and deployment but then that ongoing feed of important data about movement of inventory right so i think you mentioned containers or inbound notification um, and i assume outbound uh, would work very much in a similar fashion but there's lots of opportunities to automate are you seeing that as a part of the transformations that your team is working on
2: the answer is yes and the speed and degree of automation is going to vary significantly by each individual organization so for example on the fast end uh, one of our customers named graybar they're a very large uh, north american distributor and you know within 12 weeks they had 98% of all of their purchase and transfer lines automated right and a, and a highly selective approach to manual intervention. In other cases, it might have taken us two years to get to that point as you build, uh, say, confidence in the system and the, and the approaches. And when you're bringing machine learning into it, sort of the, this concept of sort of XAI, which is called explicable, the term for explicable AI. And, you know, people trusting the black box, right, and that the extent to which people are going to do that varies, varies uh, quite a bit, but but our view is you want to bring some of it to the table straight away, so that there's that ability to build on that foundation, whether it's 10% look, we're going to automate those purchase lines that are less than $5, right, nobody's going to lose their job over that, but we can see that ultimately, this is a nice little microcosm of of say moving that up to purchase orders of 500 or 5000 or $50,000 or you know manufacturing work order automation when we're looking at you know doing automation even when we're up at 90 plus percent of capacity utilization right where people usually want to micromanage those things and and rough cut scheduling because there's scarce uh re- either scarce componentry like today or scarce capacity
1: mm-hmm. so
2: so an incremental approach that's paced for the organization, but always greater than zero.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Now, now you mentioned a couple of things. I mean, you mentioned some pretty short timelines, and and I'm, you know, my brain is kind of uh, taking that immediately to time to value, right? right. Um, you mentioned eight weeks or one deployment, just twelve weeks, seeing some pretty significant automation. Though what is different or what what is unique? About gains and the way either the solution is designed or you're implementing or onboarding customers help us understand, you know, a couple of those aspects. So some of our listeners may not be familiar with gains.
2: Sure, yeah. So thank you. So we we've, we've talked a lot about an approach, right, which is phased, phased and feasible, right? So and mm-hmm. how do you and and based on Pareto value, we did we did hit on a couple of them. So. So, GAINS is a supply chain platform that uses a single canonical data model. So, these are not discrete sequential modules, right? And this wasn't built through acquisition of distinct products um, that interface with one another. We, we believe there's significant interdependence across everything from, as I mentioned, sort of network design and network flow, all the way through sales and operations execution. Like, how do we allocate? scarce componentry, scarce finished goods to specific orders we have right now and how do we do profitable to promise, right? So between the strategic end of how do I design flows and locations in my network through to how do I allocate this particular order, right? On an on order by order event-driven basis, GAINS has a single canonical data model and algorithmic set to handle that. So, you know, it includes... Uh, Demand forecasting, you know, traditional, there's still a lot to be said about, you know, history being, being prologue, but there's also the need to blend that with demand sensing and demand shaping. And you mentioned some things around data we bring to the table. So with demand sensing, we're connected with the Federal Reserve Economic Database. So we can look at things like housing starts or interest rates or, oil price futures and and determine through machine learning, which can scour hundreds or thousands of different types of predictive features as they're called, and determine which ones are relevant. And you don't have to feed us that data, right? That's already, that's part of the built-in part and that's a big part of time to value. So uh, sort of progressing from demand forecasting, sensing and shaping and collaborative demand planning into comprehensive inventory optimization which which we believe needs to be multi-echelon whether that's within a bill of material within a bill of distribution or within both and that's quite crucial because and here's an example of interdependence based on whether or where you're stocking is going to determine what your critical planning period for inventory deployment right so if you don't stock a raw material that has a 4 month lead time using a demand model that's really helpful over a 28 day period isn't really gonna help you make optimum raw material decisions over a four month horizon. Hmm. So how can you fine tune the demand planning based on your lead time horizons for planning where you're looking at cumulative lead times in light of say inventory stocking strategy. So that's, that's another area where we think doing this all sequentially and periodically really breaks down particularly in times of high volatility like we're seeing, right? Where, you know, steady state conditions, this might work in a spreadsheet. Outside of that, definitely not, right? And then how does that feed into supply planning so that as events change, whether it's a container uh, late into uh, West Coast port, lead times doubling due to scarcity, or, you know, customers shifting demand rapidly because of pent up demand post pandemic, for example, These are all real life examples we've seen. How can you synchronize that supply plan on an event driven basis with those other elements? And then lastly, bringing it into sort of a cohesive sales and operations planning where you could do scenario planning of understanding, you know, in times of scarcity, can I absorb this new customer? Right. And their recurring demand in these product lines. What's the what's the impact to my profitability? What do I have to air freight in versus sea freight in to make that happen, and to meet their requirements? Or, you know, conversely, you know, how, how can we optimize around different uh, inventory targets, and what does that mean, say, to our overall fill rate? And how can we achieve this uh, optimally? So, so this idea, of single model with scenario planning execution working backwards all the way through design and doing that in a single model where all the data uh, is consistent and, uh, and interactive and interdependent is really a lot of what's, what GAINS is about. And since we built the solution organically, being able to do it at a fraction of the time and the cost of the, uh, of the most expensive vendors out there. So that's our thought of bringing world-class solutions in a democratized way to the, to the broader market and the larger organizations to the extent that, you know, they buy into that vision.
1: Right, right. Now you mentioned several things there. So you mentioned some pretty sophisticated capabilities. One that I wanna talk about for just a minute is multi-echelon inventory optimization. So a lot of folks say they do inventory optimization um, and, and they will do this in a number of different ways. But when we're talking about multi-echelon inventory optimization, let's let's dive into that for just a minute, right? So we're we're moving beyond finished goods, right, and beyond finished goods across the network. Talk a little bit about what that means from a gains perspective.
2: So I think there's there's a few aspects. First, you know, uh, there's there's resilience elements. There's postponement objectives. Mm-hmm. There's the ability to increase, say, your breadth and variety of finished goods that are more personalized by having really robust, uh, say, semi-finished good inventory strategies. So so at a high level, you could think of multi-echelon as starting with the lowest point in a distribution chain that's closest to the point of demand or point of consumption, rolling up through one or two levels of distribution, which goes to a manufacturing plant, which might go through 10 levels of bill of material, all the way to the purchase component or raw materials. So your stocking decisions at the raw material level, cascade all the way down to your uh, right. fill rate capabilities, your service service capabilities and your inventory requirements down at the lowest level near the point of sale, right? So, so this is an insoluble problem, right? The combinatorial complexity of do I stock here, 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 and what are the impacts? And if I stock the raw material, it shortens my lead time here, but I've got a lot of stock in these materials that, that have a cost. And how do those trade-offs work? So we were pioneers using different types of AI methods as many as two decades ago to start with. Obviously, we can run you know hundreds of times as many scenarios as we used to be able to do but using things like genetic algorithms to get to a near-optimum solution of what's the best trade-off for resilience of stocking, long lead mm-hmm. time, procured items, short lead time, semi-finished goods. Do we want to stock the finished goods or do we want to box and label to order, right? How do we maintain flexibility? And then how far do we disperse uh, or deploy inventory through the network, right? Can we pull it as needed for high cost, low frequency? products or should we deploy it to, to the consumption point so we're not incurring a lot of expedite or extra transport we can batch things and move things in full containers and then and then ship in in boxes you know so relative and the the interesting part about that is these flows change over time yep so yep. most people might set these policies once a year because it's very difficult to even get an approximation of this uh, Gaines looks at continuous Pareto-based multi-echelon inventory optimization where we'll say, all right, here's the top 5% of materials that where you should either stop start stocking, stop stocking these, or significantly change their target fill rates in order to get to a more optimum set of trade-offs between expediting inventory and service.
1: Okay, so, so obviously that's a, that's a big part of driving some ROI, right? A, 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 one of the major factors that get measured in any of these initiatives is the investment in inventory or inventory turns or lead time, as you mentioned, as well as an element of driving service. So the ability to really bring all of that business strategy together and then continuously optimize that right. process.
2: Right, right.
1: Um, But imagine,
2: Corinne, just so if you just change your network design, Mm
1: -hmm. that's going to
2: have a profound impact on all of your assumptions and inventory optimization, which should also recognize, let's say, new demand sensing data, whereas most inventory optimization methods are just looking at history, right? And presuming that passes prologue and, and demand averages apply. Well, that doesn't work very well, say, for new products or when there's significant shifts in demand from one type of uh, product line to another, say, due to different types of material costs with commodity price changes, etc. So that's another reason where we think looking at these in isolation, A, they have short shelf lives, those models do and the results do. And then, secondly, you know they're they're not near optimum because there's a lot of oversimplifications driving.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, and I, I think that those are are really important points. And thanks for for articulating those again. It, let's recalibrate for just a minute, and let, let's talk about time to value in these transformation initiatives. Bill, can you give us like a benchmark, like what should we expect, right? I, I mentioned the McKinsey study that was done in, in 2020. So six months after um, the world was was rocked with, uh, with a COVID shutdown. And, and that study found that digital transformation and specifically in areas of, of supply chain had really accelerated and happened in a very compressed period of time. So we've proven it can be done right? We, we were forced, the focus was there, and those transformations can, in fact, happen quickly. What should we be thinking about as, you know, supply chain leaders and thinking about getting our companies to that next plateau or that next level of transformation? What horizons should we consider?
2: Well, I'll sound uh, as if I'm digressing here, but I think that's, that's part of this phased approach where you want to have quick wins over first quarter, uh, other more profound wins over six month period, and then longer term and and what that is really varies, you know, we have a customer who had 40% of their customer deliveries, what they considered out of route shipments. So they're having to ship and incur themselves the extra cost of transport by fulfilling orders from something other than the most proximate ship location
1: ah,
2: yep. right and so they had a lot more ltl shipments rather than full truck much more mileage so there's there's a sustainability issue to this right so if if uh, as we are people are concerned about minimizing their footprint now we can do better one is um servicing demand from the nearest location when it's feasible so their goal was an inventory reduction their goal was reduced out-of-route shipping which dramatically reduced final landed cost of delivering that that, those orders to those customers so they were achieving fill rate at a very high premium right Mm. we've also seen similar inbound you know with air freight versus sea freight ltl versus full truck so to the extent that you can plan better you can reduce the amount of inbound or outbound expediting so in some cases corinne that that's that's the challenge others we've seen you know 20 to 40 percent inventory reductions where they've solved the say expedite problem with a lot of buffer inventory and there's no extra credit for having more than you need for 100 percent service level right so let's say that if you'd held x units of a certain item over the last year that would have been enough To fill 100% of your orders in any given lead time period, right? If you have 2x, that extra x adds no value. Do
1: anything, yeah.
2: Right. So what we're trying to emphasize, and then there's other companies where they have both problems, right? And it's really more about an inventory balance issue, not an inventory reduction Mm -hmm. issue, right? So, so, so the answer, you know, generally we see is that you should get at least a 5x return on your total investment and that's the target and and then how do you measure that right and make sure that goals can be monetized right so if we increase our perfect order fill rate right meaning shipping it the amount requested on time from the ideal source what does that mean and how how can we describe that to our cfo in a way that she or he would understand right so, so th- that's another sort of approach that we we like looking at is what's that? What's the ROI attainment? And that's that's both a time function and a magnitude function.
1: Yeah, yeah. Again, lots of good things to consider there. Um, every company is grappling certainly with exponentially higher distribution costs right now, uh, mm-hmm. just given the the constraints um, in every area, whether it's from a container or just port capacity as well as true supply shortages that are in part, you know, driven by either production windows that are available or personnel to work in those windows. Um, So just, just a number of factors coming into play there. Bill, you've given us a lot to think about. Any final words of advice on this topic of time to value? I love the metric that you provided kind of a five X expectation. Any other things that that our listeners should consider as they um, look at their own transformation initiatives or plans for the future and consider time to value?
2: You know, the old adage, don't let perfection impede progress, Mm. right? Pragmatism, right? So what can we do now that's meaningful? And then, then I would say, lastly, find quick wins that you can use as examples to build momentum. And if if people are coming with proposals where, you know, it's going to take years, right, to to get to a meaningful and tangible set of benefits. Maybe that's good, but in parallel to that, you should be also thinking about what how can you generate some quick wins along the way. So, you know, that would be some some final thoughts about it and uh and make sure that the solutions are geared towards that and they have a track record of delivering that.
1: Yep, great insights. Thank you for joining us today. Bill Benton with Gain Systems. We really appreciate you sharing some of your expertise with us on this important topic of digital transformation or supply chain transformation, uh, but also the things we can do to really put in focus time to value as a very important element there. So thanks again for being with us today.
2: Pleasure, thanks for the opportunity to chat. Nice seeing you again. Great to see you.
1: Thank you, our audience, for joining us today on Tech Talk, where our goal is to help you to eliminate the noise and focus in on the information and inspiration that you need to transform your businesses and replace risky inventory with valuable insights. We'll see you next time here on Tech Talk, powered by Supply Chain Now.